All right, um, I will have to say that the energy level is a little bit different in here than it is with Awana. We, we normally start the night off, uh, Pastor John Stegmartin leads uh, our students, our kids, and uh, we have a song that we finish up. We usually do two worship songs, and then on the last song, I come up, and the entire Awana students, myself, the band, me and John, everybody, we all jump in unison. You got, you, I was going to say, you guys ready? Y'all up for that tonight? I didn't think so. All right. Well, well I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be able to spend a couple moments with you tonight to think about um, the book of Ezekiel. Now, you guys have been spending the last couple of weeks. You know, I don't normally get to come into foundations. Every once in a while, I'll catch a glimpse uh, of some of the videos that have been recorded. Uh, but we've been looking at the, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. And tonight, we're in Ezekiel. Next week, Pastor Clint will be back. Uh, talking about the book of Daniel. So I want to start off with this, this question because if you just jumped right into the book of Ezekiel, it, it's a little strange. It's a, it's a little bizarre if you don't understand exactly some of the context, some of the historical context of what exactly is happening. But a couple of questions. Why in the world do we even study a book like Ezekiel? Why would anyone read it? Why would we what do we do when we get there in our devotions, and how, how do we kind of navigate through it, and how do we make it beneficial for us? So instead of tonight going in too far in the weeds and too much of an outline, I, I want to try to hopefully give us some ideas of when we read it, when we're maybe a little confused and trying to think through it, like how can we benefit from it? Like what, what can we take away from it and apply to our life, and what, God, what is God trying to teach us and to tell us? So here's a couple things. The first one is... is almost comical, but it just has a sheer entertainment value. I read this from uh, Dr. Daryl Block, who's an Old Testament professor at Wheaton. He says it's, it's kind of like a, it's like a riddle. Like if you jump right in the middle and you just open up to the book of Ezekiel, what does it mean? What is he talking about? What do I take away from this? It's sometimes puzzling. It's a, it's a little bit hard to understand if you're not sure what's going on. But as a part of God's word, what is he trying to say, particularly to the Israelites, the nation of Israel who were in Babylonian captivity, but then also to us. Like, what are some things that we can apply and take uh, to our life? Even in chapter 33, way over in the book of, uh, middle of the book, Ezekiel complains that the people are just coming to see him because he's done some kind of bizarre and weird things, and it looks like a little bit of a show. So they're, they're kind of curious as to what he's going to say, what is this message from God, and how he's going to communicate it to them. So there's... Uh, there's some entertainment value to it. The second one is this, the cultural value. Ezekiel's the only prophet who spends his entire ministry in a foreign land. And we know that Jonah went to Nineveh for a short, a short time, but Ezekiel was there the whole time. It, it's, it's as if, uh, you know, I moved here about 12 years ago, and we spent four years, I'm not relating this to Babylon, but we spent four years in California before we moved to North Carolina. Um, and sometimes when you come from a different context, you come from a different cultural context. We see this a lot with, with, with missionaries. Maybe they've been on the field for a long time and they've learned language and they've learned culture and they've learned different religions. The way that they think and the way that they communicate is different. Sometimes the missionaries are gone for a long time. It takes them a while to, to acclimate back into the current culture. But the cultural influence was real. It's real today and it was real for Ezekiel as well. Ezekiel lived in Babylon, so we're searching for how the Babylonian culture and the environment influences the book, the language, the ideas, and the conversations. We don't see as much of the influence of maybe we did with some of the other prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. The, the third one, the historical value. Like, it's good to understand exactly what is happening. It's a window into the life of Judah in Jerusalem in its very darkest days. Ezekiel experiences the destruction of Jerusalem, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But by this time, we get to see why God is so serious about sin, and he's angry, and he's, he is right, rightly angry in his judgment towards sin. The fourth one is this, theological value. There's a lot of theological value that we'll get into uh, in just a moment, especially how it reveals to us and how Ezekiel reveals to us some attributes of God. Ezekiel looked at, uh, at life all through the lens of, of God's eyes and the profound theological lens. His audience is a group of hard-hearted people of Jerusalem and Judah. His people have been banking on the promises of God. And it sounds just like us sometimes. Sometimes we forget that 
where God has taken us from or what he has promised to do in our life. And so we have a God who is sovereign and good, but we still go through hardship and suffering. That's what we see in the book of Ezekiel. They have a doctrine, the, the Israelites have a doctrine of eternal security and, and actual safety, promises and covenants between God and Israel, hearkening back to the days of the descendants of Abraham and the, uh, the, the covenant made with Moses on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai and that the house of David would never fall and that God has established Jerusalem as his dwelling place. The temple is a symbol of God's presence. And so they need to be reminded of, of who God is and what he's done. And we're actually going to look at that, of how God is revealed to us, especially in the first three chapters, and how Ezekiel um, communicates that to us. The Israelites are banking on the promises of God. And they're claiming the privileges of being God's people. But they, just like us, they forgot that the privileges come with a mission. It comes with responsibility. That's what we do. We forget to be a light to the world, to the nations. We are to be agents of grace. We're to be agents of compassion. We show the world a model of righteousness and purity because that's what God had demanded of his people. Dr. Block went on to say, he said, instead, while they, were, they had this lofty theology, they had this pagan lifestyle. They believed the right things and they knew the right things and they, God had revealed the right things to them, but the way they were living didn't line up with that. And sometimes that can be us. So it's a warning to us. And the fifth one is this. For anybody who's done any type of ministry, I don't mean just pastoral ministry, if you've just served in Awana or if you've served in the food ministry or maybe you've done missions work before, it's a reminder that ministry can be difficult. There's some difficulties that come with Ezekiel's ministry. There's actually a lot of difficulties that come with it. Ezekiel was a minister to the exiles, and he had a very hard and very difficult congregation. You ever felt like that trying to serve God? Like maybe you're just not making headway, or maybe you're, the, the message that you're trying to share with your coworker, the, um, the opportunities of being able to sow seeds of the gospel just don't seem to be going anywhere. That's exactly how Ezekiel felt. And that's exactly really the ministry that God had given to him. God told Ezekiel that he wouldn't really see any fruit at all. But God did not call Ezekiel to just success. God said, I want you to proclaim my word. I want you to preach my word. And I want you to be faithful. He's not called us to success. He's called us to faithful service. So that's what God calls us to do. So who wrote the book of Ezekiel? Anybody want to take a guess? Yeah, very good. That was good. Only one person yelled it out. Ezekiel. Ezekiel is both the name of the 6th century B.C. prophet and the title of the book that regards his preaching. This is where we see this. Ezekiel's name means God strengthened or maybe strengthened by God. On the way to school the other day, my kids and I, I have five daughters, and uh, let's see, three of us were in the car. We got into this conversation about, like, what does your name mean? And I couldn't really remember. Uh, and so I had to go and, like, Google, like, what my children's names mean. One of the mean things, like, uh, let's see, island, wished for. My name meant something like a straight and narrow waterway. And I was like, well, that's not really helpful. But if you, go, if you continue going down the Google rabbit hole, it find, I found one that said handsome. So I'm going to stick with that one, okay? <laughs> I felt like that one was more appropriate. And that's exactly the, the meaning of Ezekiel's name was really in regards to the ministry that God had given to him. It was appropriate for a prophet who was called to proclaim a message of uncompromising judgment and later a message of hope and restoration for God's sake. Not Israel's. It was for God. Ezekiel lived out his prophetic career among the community of exiled Judeans in Babylon, and he belonged to the priestly class of Israel. So here's a couple of backgrounds. Here's a couple of things to know about Ezekiel and a little bit about his life. If Ezekiel was 30 years old at the time of the inaugural vision, which we'll see in just a moment in chapters 1 through 3, <clears throat> the interesting connection can be made that the final vision of the book, which is dated to the, 20th, uh, the 25th year of the exile, when Ezekiel could have been about 50 years old. As we see in Numbers chapter 4, it makes clear that the age of 30 to 50 marks the span of the active service of the priest. And as a member of the exile community, Ezekiel could, would not have been able to participate in the ritual life of the Jerusalem temple, nor would he, would he have undergone initiation into priestly service while living outside of the land. When they were taken exile, he couldn't continue to do those priestly services outside of Jerusalem. 
But perhaps the timing of these visions coincided with what would have been Ezekiel's working life as a priest and he lived in the Jerusalem prior to that exile. So the date and the context. Some of you are visual. I think we've got a, a, a short little timeline to help you with this. Ezekiel's visions and he prophecies, they take place between 593 B.C. and 573 B.C. This time period begins about uh, seven years before the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem and around 15 plus years into Judea, uh, Judah's Babylonian exile. So we see Ezekiel, he prophesied during a time of great confusion following Israel's exile to Babylon. A former Judean king was among the exiles, an 18-year-old Jehoiakim, and the Babylonians had appointed a puppet king of the throne in Jerusalem, Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah. And in times of crisis, God sent prophets like Ezekiel, like uh, Daniel, like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, to bring his message to his people. So Judah's exile was therefore a period of intense prophetic activity. That's why we call them the major prophets. That's what we're gleaning from them. Ezekiel's fellow exiles were his main audience. That's who he was writing to. So the people that were with him, that were in exile, that had been uh, captive, uh, they'd been captured by the Babylonians. This is who he was uh, writing to. But there were also some that continued to remain in Judah. The Near East at the time of Ezekiel, Ezekiel recorded his visions and prophecies while living near Babylon, where he has been exiled years later. By Ezekiel's time, the Babylonian Empire had conquered almost all of the area along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. So you can see everything there that's in the green is where uh, the Babylonian Empire was, all the way down from Jerusalem and Judah, uh, down to the bottom left corner of the screen, the green that goes over, and then you'll see the exile, the red line, where they're going all the way over uh, to Babylon. You'll see Chavar Canal over there on that side. That's where Ezekiel 1 uh, starts off. So Ezekiel spoke to a people that were forced from their home because they had broken their faith with God. And as the spokesman for the Lord, Ezekiel spoke oracles and prophecies that defended his reputation as a holy God. Let me read uh, chapter 36, verses number 22 and 23. And this is the primary purpose of Ezekiel's message and how it was to restore God's glory before Israel. It says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. We need to be reminded that this was why God chose and he made a covenant with Israel so that they were the ones who were to make his name glorious and great to the world, to the nations. He says, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So we see here this reminder of the importance of, of, of uh, Ezekiel carrying the message of who God is and why he has chosen his people even while they are in exile. So has anyone ever asked the question like, Maybe when you first became a Christian or first became a believer, maybe you've had someone ask you, hey, where should I start reading in the Bible? Want to read the Bible? That's how I grow. That's how God reveals himself. Like, where should I start? We usually say something like the book of James. It's real practical, kind of easy to read, some do's and don'ts and things to, to please God. Maybe the book of John. We find out about the life of Jesus. Rarely do we say, you know what, you should probably just plop down right in the middle of the book of Ezekiel, right? Because you'd be like, what in the world is going on? So hopefully we're going to have a little bit better understanding of what exactly is happening. So how do we read Ezekiel? God gives Ezekiel three sequences of visions. And if we work to understand these, it'll help us to understand the book. And hopefully we can pull some practical things out from it as well. The first sequence occurs in chapters 1 through 3, where Ezekiel, now in Babylon, he sees God coming to him in a vision. This is when we'll spend a little bit of time in just a moment. The second sequence occurs in chapters 8 through 11, and it's a flashback. It's where God shows Ezekiel how his presence has departed from Jerusalem because of the idolatrous worship that was going on there being practiced in the temple. Now, remember, the temple was the sign. This was where God dwelt, and that's where his presence was. And now uh, idol worship was happening there, and now God's presence has left the temple. 
Then the book concludes with the third section. The book concludes with a long vision sequence in chapters 40 through 48 when God returns to his people when the, when the temple is going to be rebuilt. So here's a couple of things to summarize Ezekiel before we get into a, a bit of an outline and hopefully uh, take some things that can uh, help us improve our understanding of who God is and how he reveals, reveals himself to us through Ezekiel. Last week we heard that the prophet Jeremiah, who lived in a, uh, a century after the prophet Isaiah, urged Judah and Jerusalem to follow the Lord's directions by surrendering to the Babylonian army. Now we get into the prophet Ezekiel, who lived at the same time as Jeremiah, but those ministry was actually set in exile in Babylon. So let's start off with a quick uh, biographical sketch of Ezekiel and an overview of the structure of the book to help us understand it a little bit better. The Babylonians were carted uh, carted the Israelites off to exile, that's what we saw in the uh, map a second ago, into different, several different waves. Ezekiel was among the earlier waves. He was uh, among the first ones that were taken away into exile. He probably traveled to Babylon in 597 B.C. along with the royal family and other leading citizens of Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem was not entirely destroyed until about a decade later, around 586 Ezekiel had been trained as a priest in Jerusalem, and he knew the religious life of his people well. Perhaps he'd even heard Jeremiah preach in Jerusalem before he was taken away. But once he was in exile, away from the temple, it may have looked like this priest, Ezekiel, had no future serving God's people. Like, what was he going to do? A priest's work was tied up in the temple, and now that the presence of God was taken away, what was Ezekiel to do? So Ezekiel was a priest who'd been living there in Jerusalem at the first Babylonian attack in the city. And the city itself was spared, but the king of Babylon took a first wave of Israelite prisoners into exile. Ezekiel was among them. The book began five years after these traumatic events, and we find Ezekiel in chapter 1 sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp around his 30th birthday. It's the year that uh, he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem because that was the year, hearkening back to Numbers chapter 4, of when the, um, uh, the men could become priests around the age of 30. So we see in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse number 1, this is how the book starts. Have you guys ever heard the song, Ezekiel Saw the Wheel? Somebody know what I'm talking about? Like, by your hands raised. Wow, my in-laws were the only people that raised their hands. Okay, good. Would you guys like for me to sing? I'm not going to sing it. <clears throat> There's a song that was written. It was uh, uh, like a spiritual gospel song that was written uh, decades ago that was called Ezekiel Saw the Wheel. And I remember growing up that it was on a, a kid's album. And at the time, I was like, I don't know what this song means. It would be like picking up the book and starting to try to read it and try to understand. But this is what the lyrics uh, say. It says, Ezekiel saw that wheel way up in the middle of the air. Ezekiel saw that wheel whirling way up in the middle of the air. Now, the little wheel runs by faith, and the big wheel runs by the grace of God, and a wheel in a wheel whirling way up in the middle of the air. Now, as a kid, when I heard that song, I was like, I have no idea what, he is, what they are talking about. And if we don't understand exactly what Ezekiel was talking about and the vision that God had given him, we might feel the same way as well. So Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw a vision of God. So this is where we see the commissioning and where God calls and he uses and reveals himself to Ezekiel. All of a sudden, he has a vision, and he sees a storm cloud approaching. And within that cloud, he sees four strange creatures connected by their outstretched wings. Each of the creatures has four faces, a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And each of the creatures are on top of this wheel. Their wings support a shining platform that holds a throne with a mysterious human-like figure shrouded in fire and glowing light. Ezekiel realizes that what he's seeing, and he describes it as the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He uses the word over and over, appearance, because he's not really sure how to describe it. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and it means heavy and significant. And this is what he is understanding. He's starting to see the holiness of God. The Bible author, the biblical authors use this word to describe the, the physical manifestation of God's importance when he personally appears, when he actually shows up in front of people. 
How, what, what do they actually see? The images and the vision are similar to when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 24, and as well when his presence came over the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus chapter 25. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's visions is that God's glorious presence is supposed to be dwelling in Jerusalem at the temple. So what is God's glory doing in an exile place like Babylon? This question, this is what we're going to be obvious to the ancient Israelites, is what the first section of this book, chapters 1 through 3, are going to help us to understand. So a couple of things that I want you to see that I think are in your outline that help us understand practically some things that we learn about God, the way that he revealed himself to Ezekiel in this. The first one is this, that God is not like us. God is not like us. Many people have tried to draw what this vision looks like. If you try to take all the, the details and the intricacies of how God revealed himself to Ezekiel and how uh, Ezekiel wrote it down, I'm not sure exactly what that sketch would look like. It would be a great opportunity uh, for us to do that maybe in the preschool sometime. That's what those uh, items look like. They, you can't even really make out what was actually happening. But that's the probably an impossible task to be able to do that. But that's really the whole point, is to be reminded that the God that we serve, the God that was revealing himself to Israel, to, to Ezekiel, he says, we're, we're not the same. I, I'm different. I'm set apart. What Ezekiel could see in the vision was that God was not like us. He's different. He's strange. He's, he's otherworldly than us. Often we assume that God is, well, he's, he's kind of like us. He makes decisions like us. He, we're created in his image, so he's probably a little bit like us. But Ezekiel's vision lets us know how God is an entirely different being than we are. We cannot simply make him over in our image. He's unusual. He's set apart. Ezekiel did not hesitate to describe everything that he saw in these first few chapters. And he uses the word appearance over and over. The Bible calls God holy. It's one of the phrases that we talk about the most. and We try to understand what it actually means. And that it's not just as that he possesses some form of holiness, but that he, in fact, is his essence, is holy. So therefore, we must draw a, a reverence for God. When we think about reading the book of Ezekiel, it should bring us to a place of reverence at all for God, for the almighty God, the God who has always been and always will be. Ezekiel himself fell down on his face. We read this in these few chapters that he is in awe of what God has revealed to him. His new knowledge of God did not make him feel more casual about God at all. Instead, he had a new reverence and an awe for God. Just like what happened to Job in the book of Job when he had a vision of God as well. The second one is this. God is all-powerful and all-wise. We see here in the first three chapters that God is all-powerful and all-wise. We can see that the, the rims of the wheels are even covered with eyes. If you read this in verse number 18, uh, chapter 1, verse number 18, and the four faces look in every direction. These are descriptions of how uh, God, uh, Ezekiel saw this vision of who God was. These things show God's omniscience, that he sees everywhere. He sees everything. We say that all the time, even around the dinner table to our children, that he knows what we're doing, even when we try to hide it. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what's going on, not just in this room or not just in the presence uh, in the temple, but everywhere. He's all-powerful and all-wise. There's nothing that he does not perceive. He is all-knowing. And the fact that God can be on this chariot that moves in the directions uh, shows that he is all-powerful, that he's not limited by space and time. He can be in any place, and Ezekiel could trust this all-powerful and all-wise God just like we can. The third one is this, that God is not limited by our circumstances. Oftentimes we do that. We put parameters on how God can act and what he can do. One of the big points of Ezekiel was, not that, was that he was seeing God at all. After all, he was not in Jerusalem or in the temple. He was in exile in Babylon where he had a vision of the God Almighty. God is not limited just to Jerusalem even during that time. The vision assured Ezekiel that God would be with his people wherever they were scattered. In Judah, in Jerusalem, even in Babylon. God's not limited to any one place and he has a concern for the entire world. The fourth one is this, that God is the one who takes the initiative. We see this from the very beginning, from the very first verse. So when you read these chapters, we will notice that God takes the initiative. He's the one who comes to us. 
Look again at verse number one. It says, the heavens were opened. He chose to come down. Ezekiel didn't open the heavens and go to him. Then we see in verse number three, it says, the word of the Lord came. Verse number four says, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north. Then in verse 25, then came a voice. And finally, in verse number 28, I heard the voice of one speaking. We're reminded that God is the one who takes the initiative. He is the one who is working. And thank, thanks be to God, he is the one who came to us. The fifth one is this, that God communicates. He communicates. In verse number 28, we notice that uh, Ezekiel's vision ends in a voice. It says this, when I heard the voice of one speaking in words. If we were planning this kind of vision and we wanted to communicate it to people, we would probably try to come up with some type of show or some type of uh, visual aid to be able to help people. You know, for, for a lot of us, it'd probably be like a 10-second reel on Instagram, right? That's how we want to be able to try to communicate this as quickly as possible. But instead, God's vision shows up with something not for our eyes, but it was the word of the Lord to the ears. I hear the voice of one speaking. That's why God's word is central in our church's gathering. Even Pastor Clint at the beginning of the night, this is what he talked about. We take time to hear from God's word because he speaks it to us through his word. That's what's going on all around the campus tonight. Downstairs in student ministry, they're opening God's word. They're learning about who God is through his revealed word. The kids in Awana, they're memorizing God's word, the scripture, to be reminded of who he is. The women's class, in foundations, all the way over in our ESL, this campus is hopefully being saturated with God's word because that's how he reveals himself to us and we're remind, we are reminded that this is how he communicates and reveals himself to us. So then we move on to chapters four through five. We see how Ezekiel gets his message across with his words by performing some sign acts, a form of kind of ancient street theater. This is where if you jumped right into chapters four and five, you're like, what? What exactly is Ezekiel doing? He would publicly behave in these strange, kind of bizarre ways, and he acted out these parables um, with his prophetic message of what God had told him. A couple of, couple of uh, uh, um, examples of this. He was called to build a tiny model of Jerusalem, and then he reenacted how uh, the Babylonian attack was going to uh, come, uh, come on them. He shaved off all of his hair, and he chopped it up with the sword. You can read all of this in chapters 4 through 5. Have you ever taken a nap? I'll stop right there. Have you ever taken a nap? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever taken a nap, even just for a few minutes, and a part of your body falls asleep, like your, your leg or maybe your arm or something like that? Uh, one of the things that we see, the way that Ezekiel was communicating this message of atonement was by laying on his side for 390 days. And then after 390 days, he did it for another 40 days. I cannot imagine the amount of body parts that went asleep while he was just laying on his side. Imagine laying in that position for over a year because this is the way that he was reenacting to the people in a bizarre way, God's judgment. He played the role of the scope gate on the Day of Atonement by lying on his side for over a year, eating food cooked over human waste as a sign of the nasty food that was going to get ready to be eaten when Jerusalem was taken over. So he was letting the people know it's going to get a whole lot worse. Perhaps the most disheartening thing of all, however, is the bad news that God gave Ezekiel. That even though you're going to do these things, even though you're going to communicate them in some bizarre ways, no one's going to listen. Imagine that that's what the message that he gave us. He said, look, I... I'm going to ask you to do this hard ministry. I'm going to ask you to, go, to do this to these hard-hearted people. And in the end, there's going to be no fruit. Would we still be willing to carry that message? Would we still be willing to be obedient to God? This recalls Moses' description of Israel that after the wilderness rebellion and his prediction that Israel would eventually end up in this exact same spot that now Ezekiel was in. Ezekiel had the unfortunate privilege of seeing Moses' warning finally becoming a reality. So kind of the second section here is um, we see his presence being held out. I think I wrote on a note there, hold out. Because it was a way there in this second section, this is a vision of God's departure, that he was holding out his, 
his glory. He was holding out his presence from the people of Israel. And he was withholding his presence uh, at the temple. After his commission, a shocked Ezekiel began to perform his task. And after about a year, he has another vision in which he is taken on a virtual tour of the temple to see what's happening there in his absence. We see this in chapters 8 through 11. And it's not good. We see in the outer court in the front of the temple uh, a large statue that's being worshipped. Um, this is a reminder, uh, hearkening back to the Ten Commandments, of how important it was to not worship graven images. We also see women worshipping the Babylonian goddess. And finally, he sees God's glorious throne chariot holding out. It was beginning to move out and move away and leave space between the temple and Babylon. And in chapter 11, we discover why and how God's glory came to appear before Ezekiel as he sat by the canal in Babylon. It's Israel's idolatry and covenant violations that became so blatant and so offensive to God that he described his own presence leaving the temple. The Israelites were the one who had driven their God away, and he gives the city and the temple over to destruction. He lets them know that this is what is about to happen. But God goes with them. He doesn't just leave them. He goes with them in exile. And at the end of the vision, God promises that he will return a remnant of Israel back to the land, transforming them by removing their heart of stone and giving them a new, soft heart of flesh. Isn't that what he does in our life? He reminds us that even though we were once dead, which we'll see in Ezekiel 37 in just a moment, he reminds us that this is how I'm still working. I can remove your heart of stone and I can replace it with a heart of love, with a heart of grace, and with a heart of mercy. So we see a small glimmer of hope that quickly submerged on the reality of the destruction that was getting ready to happen at the temple and in Jerusalem. Chapter 11 is kind of a key turning point, a transition point, that helps us to understand how the rest of the book of Ezekiel is designed. The next sections are all about announcements of God's judgment, beginning with the Israels, uh, moving on to the neighboring nations, and we see that in chapters 25 through 32. And we finally address the city of Jerusalem itself in chapter number 23. So following all of this grim judgment, we find in chapters 34 through 38 a more helpful conclusion for Israel the nations, and all creation. Chapters 12 through 24, they tell us about the warning of actually what's getting ready to happen in Jerusalem to let the people know that th this is what is coming. Because of your unfaithfulness, because of your idolatry, because of your unrighteousness, this is what is about to come. Chapter 25 through 33 uh, talk about the judgment of the nations, of the ones who have opposed Israel and how they have worshipped uh, false gods as well and that the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent as well. So follow these intense sections is a short story in chapter number 33. Ezekiel is met by a refugee who has just arrived from Jerusalem to give him a report. Babylon has attacked the city of Jerusalem once again. This time the city has fallen and the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel's warnings became a reality. It was now that time but in the, midst of, in the midst of this grief, we remember the glimmer of hope, the future of hope that we saw in chapter 11, that Jerusalem's destruction is not the end of the story. So the third section there, we talked about God's holiness and how he held out his presence is about healing. This is where the story begins to turn and we begin to see glimpses of the gospel. We see a vision of God's grace and restorations in chapter 33 through 37. We see the coming hope after this exile. Like, what is God actually going to do? And how is he going to restore his kingdom? How is the temple going to re be rebuilt? Even though it's not quite exactly clear, he lets us know that he's not done. He's still got work to do. So the next main part of Ezekiel is chapter 34 through 38. And this is probably where most people are familiar with the book of Ezekiel. It explores the after aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And this was the most horrendous catastrophe that had ever happened to Israel. And it raised the question of whether or not God was, was he actually done with his people? Had he actually broken this covenant? But back in chapter 11, we're left with the hope that there was still a future beyond this exile. 
And the rest of the book of Ezekiel is designed to explore this vision of hope. And this is where, as you're reading Ezekiel, or maybe the next time you pick up this book and you say, I'm not really sure, here are some things that, that we can look for, glimpses of the gospel that help us to understand what God was doing. God promises Israel that he's going to raise up a new David, a future messianic king who will be the kind of leader that Israel always needed, but they never had. The new Israel that will come under the king's reign they'll finally be transformed. God will deal with their problem of a re rebellion by giving them brand new hearts. We see that in chapter 36, just as Moses has promised all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. God said that he's going to remove Israel's hard heart and he's going to send his spirit into his people to give them new soft hearts that will love and obey their God. We, say, we see that in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 23 through 30. So in chapter number 34, this is where we begin to see uh, some messianic prophecies about our Messiah, about Christ. We see the good shepherd in chapter uh, number 34. It shows us the idea of a, of a shepherd king, that there's no greater leader for God's people than God himself. So we need a good shepherd. We need a better shepherd. We need Jesus. And this is what the hearkening uh, it begins to give us glimpses of the gospel of what is to come in the future of when God sends his son. So next we get to see probably the most popular or familiar story in the book of Ezekiel. Anybody want to guess what that you think that might be? There you go, dry bones. It wasn't the wheel. Nobody knew that song. The Valley of the Dry Bones in chapter number 37. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to chapter number 37. I do want to read the first uh, 10 verses. You've probably heard this read before. You've probably heard sermons preached on this before, especially when it comes to evangelism or revival or revitalizing churches. Let me read the first 10 verses of excuse me, Ezekiel chapter number 37. It says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he sat me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to those bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And this is what happened. So I prophesied, this is Ezekiel, as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. Some versions say even like an earthquake. And the bones begin to come together, bone to its bone. And as I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and they were covered. The skin began to cover them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these, on these slain, so they that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived. And they stood on their feet as an exceedingly great army. Ezekiel is to proclaim God's promise to reassemble the Israelites from the world and to restore the nation of Israel. And that's what we see in verse number five. And he gave them the spirit of true salvation and a brand new spiritual life. God is promising this resurrection of the nation of Israel and its final, uh, its eventual spiritual regeneration. In verse number 7 through 10 in the vision, Ezekiel did as God had told him, and the dead became a living nation. This is where we see a picture of God's work and accomplishing the work of salvation. If you think back, uh, if you think over into the New Testament, when the, uh, when the angel Gabriel revealed himself to Mary, you remember one of the things that he said to her in Luke chapter 1? He said, nothing is impossible with God. That was Gabriel to Mary. 
defeating a giant with a stone, making walls fall down with horns and shouts. These sound almost comical, like how in the world is that going to happen? Being in the middle of a fire and coming out with not even the smell of smoke on your clothes. And even in Mary's case, like I don't even have, have a husband. But nothing is impossible with God. As we're reading the book of Ezekiel, we need to be reminded that he's still a God of impossible things. He's still a God who is powerful, who is mighty, who can change heart and change life. As familiar as we are with these truths, though, sometimes some of us, we struggle to believe that truth. We may generally know and say, oh, I believe that, that all things are possible with God, that he can do anything. But we doubt it specifically when it comes to the circumstances of our own life, of our own specific situation. Doubt leads to despair, and then despair then leads to hopelessness. But in Ezekiel 37, we are reminded that Israel felt hopeless. They even said it in verse number 11. So what was the purpose of this vision and the field trip to the Valley of the Bones? This is what he says in verse number 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of, of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Verse number 12 says this. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will be the one who puts my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. We're able to see this and we're able to be reminded that God was still at work. Even though the Israelites thought we're away, the temple has been destroyed, we're in captivity, how can he redeem this? How can anything good come out of this? But we see this in, verses, in these verses that God was still at work. God had determined to deliver his people and that nothing was going to stand in his way. Even though they had felt forsaken, they weren't. Even though they were still his people, he was faithful even when Israel was not. Isn't that how he is with us? He's faithful to us even when we are not. He's faithful uh, no matter what we do in our lives. Despite all Israel had done to rebel against God, he would still deliver his people from the nations in which they were exiled, and he was going to lead them back to their land. And he's not acting on, their good, on how good they were, but he was acting because he is good, which should give us all hope that none of us are too far away from God um, in the valley of the dry bones. This sounds like the good news of the gospel. This is how we talk about the gospel and how it uh, applies to our life. Without Christ, we are as bad and as dead as, that, as Israel and the valley of the dry bones. But Paul said in Colossians 1.21, he says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. But in Ephesians chapter 2, we see the message of the gospel and how God takes these valley of the dry bones, or he takes these dry bones in our hearts and our hard hearts, and then he changes them. He's the one who gives them life. And this is what he says. This is how uh, Paul reminds us of the gospel. He says, and you were dead, just like those bones, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at works in the sons of disobedience, among whom all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But here's the change, like we saw over in chapter 11. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By his grace, we have been saved. This is where we see glimpses of the gospel and how uh, God works even in our life. But then he also does this for a reason. We see this in verse number, um, in, uh, excuse me, in uh, Ephesians um, Chapter 2, he says, we are created for his workmanship. Just like Israel had a job to do and a nation uh, and a world to be the light to, it's our job to be a light and to be um, uh, a light in a dark world to the people around us as well. So the last section is we see this message of hope. 
A vision of God's coming and the promise of a brand new paradise. A vision of a restored temple and a renewed creation in paradise. The last great series of visions in the book then occur in chapters 40 to 48, where God shows Ezekiel a new temple. The first temple had been destroyed in the Babylonian invasion after God's departure. But God said to Ezekiel in chapter uh, 40, verse number 4, he says, Son of man, look at your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. This is kind of the crescendo of the whole book. This is, what, uh, this is the, the, the vision that God is returning to rebuild the temple in chapter 43, and that's what that whole chapter is all about. Even as Ezekiel has seen the glory of the Lord depart from the temple and the cities in chapters 10 and 11, which happened earlier, several years earlier, now he's able to see the hope. Now he's able to see restoration. Now he's able to see God accomplishing what he said he was going to do. In Ezekiel chapter 40, 43, verses 1 through 5, let's listen to the glory of the Lord and how it fills the temple. He said, Then he led me to the gate and the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw, it was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen with, uh, by the Chebar ca Canal. And I fell on my face. And as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and it brought me into the inner court. And behold... The glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is what we should be thankful for. That Israel, excuse me, Ezekiel prophesied that the exiles would return to the land. And here he promises that the destroyed temple would be rebuilt and filled once again with the presence of God. God would once again be with his people. From God's renewed presence and rule, unnumbered blessings would flow, even as a river would flow out of the new temple, which we see in chapter number 47. So the purpose of this temple vision was to highlight a restored relationship. That's really the, the message of the gospel, of how we can have a restored relationship with God. That by our own sin, we have been separated from God, but in his kindness and in his goodness, he says, I can restore that. I can restore all things. And that's what I did through my son, Jesus. So the final verse of the book is a fitting ascription. It says this, And the name of the city from that time on will be, The Lord is there. Those are the last four words that you'll see in the book of Ezekiel. The Lord is there. The book leaves us with the picture of God forever with his people. Ezekiel is in a sense the Old Testament, kind of the equivalent to the book of Revelation. Um, especially when Revelation's closing is about a vision of God. And like Revelation, Ezekiel closes with this glorious hope of paradise, that one day when we get to dwell with God forever in paradise, that this is what it's uh, going to look like and what it's going to feel like. Each tribe is promised a portion of a renewed land and a land which seems to point beyond what Ezra and Nehemiah returned to find and a land that we as followers of Jesus can still look forward to. So a couple of themes and key themes that you can take away. I'm just going to give you a couple of words that as you are reading the book of Ezekiel, when you read the book of Ezekiel, be looking for these themes to help you understand how God has revealed himself to us. The first one is just holiness. Just being reminded of the holiness of God and how important it is for us to have reverence and awe and what happens when we don't. As a priest, Ezekiel was deeply concerned with restoring God's people to holiness. His understanding of the depths of Israel's sin is clear in the vision of the version of Israel's history. Even the oracles and the prophecies of a restored Israel include a way to deal with the people's sin so that they can survive in the presence of a holy God. Ezekiel's concern with sin also accounts for the many places where the book echoes all the way back to uh, the books of Moses and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So we see some similarities there between Ezekiel and the new temple and the Exodus tabernacle. The second one is idolatry. Like what are the things in our life that we have raised up as graven images? What things do we think are more important or do we spend more time thinking about and dwelling on 
that aren't God? Have they become idols in our life? Israel was subject to this as well. This was God. Uh, he was not a, a tribal deity. He, God was the only God, the, the one true God of Israel. He is the supreme over all nations. And he was reminded that we should be careful to make sure that God is the one true God that we are worshiping. The third one is this, just judgment. We need to be aware that God judges and takes sin seriously. Ezekiel declares judgment on those clinging to false hope, but he offers true hope to those who trust in God, to those who understand why his judgment has come. He linked God's judgment to the hope of a new heart and a new spirit. And then the fourth thing is this, just hope. We have a hope. Israel at times felt like they didn't have a lot of hope. Had God left us? But had he taken his spirit from them? The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. Where is the hope? But yet we see in a place like the, villa, the, the valley of the dry bones that God is still working. And that when he interacts and when he initiates and when he shows up, anything is possible. So I encourage you tonight as we uh, close in just a moment to, to be reminded that whatever situation that we're in, whatever situation that you're walking through, whatever difficult circumstance that you may be entering, God can do impossible things. God can do things that, that maybe we don't even know about. God can work in ways that are mysterious, that are uh, going to be difficult for us to explain, like some of the visions of Ezekiel. But yet he says, I am still at work and I will be with my people. So God is with his people and he will make a way for them to truly be with him in heaven. But to see more of that future, next week, Pastor Clint is going to walk through the book of Daniel, which will help us to understand uh, what some of the future potentially could look like. But for now, that's the book of Ezekiel. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this book. If we're honest, it is difficult to understand. It's big, and sometimes it can be confusing. But we're reminded of how it reveals your holiness, your attributes to us, of who you are. And God, of who we are as your people. God, as we leave here tonight, God, help us be reminded that we are to pursue holiness because you are holy. God, we thank you that none of us could match up to that. None of us could ever do that perfectly. But your son Jesus did it for us. And so, God, help us to look to him as the good shepherd, the king shepherd. God, help us to give complete control of our lives over to the one true God, your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for loving us. God, go with us tonight. Help us to continue to, to love you and to love others. In Christ's name I pray, amen.